Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. I'm Yael Ziegler, and today we'll be doing our fourth shiur in Parshat Bo. At the end of our previous shiur, we spoke a little bit about the beginning of the mitzvot section in the story of Yitzhak Yitzhak, the beginning of the commandments. That is basically uh, the bulk of chapter 12. We discussed that there's a certain feeling of pause in the plague narrative, and we turn our attention to Am Yisrael, who are given a series of commandments um, the nature of these commandments has been the subject of many different discussions, and we're going to be exploring many different ways of understanding what the purpose of these commands are, some of which we discussed a little bit at the end of the last shiur. Um, some of the different approaches will include that these mitzvot are meant to form Am Yisrael into a community. They're meant to perhaps set Am Yisrael on the path towards freedom. They're meant to give Am Yisrael the merit and the worth that is necessary in order for them to dis, to deserve redemption. Um, perhaps some of these mitzvot or all of these mitzvot are also intended to enable Am Yisrael to distinguish themselves from the Egyptian culture in which they have been for, for such a long time. These mitzvot are perhaps meant to give them an opportunity to separate themselves from the Egyptian culture. And in certainly these mitzvot are also meant to help Am Yisrael to define their relationship with God, to give them a sense of what it is that God wants from them. Um, so with this in mind, we're going to begin now our uh, our exploration of Perak Bet. We'll be starting in Pasuk Gimel, and that's because last time we already spoke about Sukim Aleph and Bet, which is the first mitzvah of the consecration of the month, what we call Kiddush HaChodesh. When we begin in Pasuk Gimel, what we're going to see is the mitzvah, the command of what we call Pesach Mitzrayim, of the celebration of Pesach in Egypt on the night of their redemption. There are all sorts of commandments which they are given in order to uh, both perhaps uh, enable them to be liberated from Egypt and also certainly it seems to be to save them from the plague of the firstborns, which is swirling all around them. This, uh, this, this mitzvah and this description begins in Pasuk Gimel, and it continues until Pasuk Yud Gimel. This is what we call Pesach Mitzrayim. Beginning in Pasuk Yud Dalid through Pasuk Kaf, we have the command of what we call Pesach Dorot, the celebration of Pesach in future generations. In both of these sections, the key word is Achal, which appears seven times in each section. And that means that each of these sec sections centers around the experience of eating, particularly when we come to Pesach Dorot, to the way in which we celebrate Pesach through the de generations, we'll be focused not only on eating matzah, but also on not eating chametz. So we have these commandments of eating and not eating. Uh, we'll be discussing this as we progress. Let's begin in Pasuk Gimel. Pasuk Gimel begins, Dabru el kol adat Yisrael lemor, be'asor lachodesh hazeh, Speak to all of the congregation of Israel, saying, on the, tenth of, on the tenth of this month, each person should take a uh, lamb for the house of his, of his fathers, a lamb per house. Um, now, one thing that I will note in this pasuk, and that, that is, this is really a description of uh, the community, kol adat Yisrael, all of the community of Israel. This description opens the chapter. It's also going to close the chapter in Pasuk Mem Zayin, where we're going to have a similar phrase, or an identical phrase, 
Kol Adat Yisrael. Uh, this, of course, shows that one important concept of the chapter is that the chapter and the events of the chapter are meant to form us, to form Am Yisrael into a community. It's the making of Adat Bnei Yisrael, of the community of Yisrael. Let's look in Pasuk Dalet. V'im yim'at habayit miyot miseh, v'lakachu u'shchino hakarov el beito b'michsat nefashot, ish l'fi ochlo tachosu al haseh. This is a bit of a difficult pasuk to translate literally. We're going to give it a shot. And if there are too few in the house to be for each lamb, and he and his close neighbor shall uh, take it to his house according to the number of persons, each person according to what he should eat should be covered by the lamb. The basic idea, of course, being that there shouldn't be leftovers, that uh, people should get together with other households in order to be able to finish the lamb together. Again, this eating together is also about the formation of a community. The other point that I want to already make here in Pasuk Dalid, which we're going to be talking about as we progress, is the, the uh, focus here on the house. There's both a very strong emphasis on community, but there's also a very strong emphasis on the word bayit, which is really, I think, the key word of this chapter. I think we have to recognize that the word bayit is very important Throughout the story, don't forget that the word paro means literally in Egyptian, the great house, right? And here we have the formation of a house of Yisrael, which is in opposition to the house of paro, to the, the, the culture of the Egyptians. We have also throughout the plague story, we have the uh, threat to paro's personal house, which we spoke about at the very beginning of the story. We see that the what seems to be the reward for the midwives, at least according to most of the biblical interpreters, is vayas lahem batim, right? That certainly, uh, that pasuk, and, and, and he made for them houses, is understood by most biblical interpreters as a reward for the midwives. This idea of creating a house, of creating something which is stable, which is enduring, which is lasting, which protects the residents of the house from external dangers the making of a community, the making of a dynasty, all of these things are woven into what it means to build this house. This is all part of this chapter. All of these mitzvot take place within the house. They surround the house. They emphasize the house. They enable us both to focus on the meaning of building a house and on, of course, the doing of mitzvot, the, the keeping God's commands, which is the definition of house building. We build our house through our commitment to mitzvot. Uh, okay, let's go on. Let's look in Pasukei. Se tamim zachar ben shana yelachem min hakvasim umin haizim tikachu. An unblemished male lamb that is one year old, you should take for yourself. From the sheep and from the goats, you shall take it. This language, I think, is very reminiscent of uh, sacri of sacrifices, of korbanot in general. We'll be talking about that in a few minutes. To what extent this uh, Pesach, this uh, this this uh, description of taking the lamb on the night of Pesach in Mitzrayim, to what extent it is a sacrificial kind of of situation, to what extent it's a korban. Uh, we'll understand that a little bit more later, but for the moment I just want to note that the language of Set Tamim, of Zachar, of Ben Shana, of Kvasim, of Izim, it all recalls, it all will be part of Korbanot language that we'll see later in Sefer Vayikra. Look in Pasuk Vav, Vayalachem Lemishmerek, 
עד ארבעה עשר יום לחודש הזה. And this should be for you as a watch until the 14th day of this month. ושחטו אותו כל קהל עדת ישראל בן הארבעים. All of the assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. Um, this description here of taking the lamb on the 10th day of the month and keeping it למשמרת as some sort of watch for four days is, has been the subject of some discussion. Uh, Rashi notes that this act of Shmirah, this act of watching, is intended to give Am Yisrael the, um, the, the mitzvot, the commandments, that enable them to have the merit to leave Egypt. Of course, this idea of watching, the act of Shmirah, of a mitzvot, is an intrinsic part of our relationship with God. We have it with Avodat HaMishkan, we have it with Shabbat. It implies vigilance, it implies care, it implies um, a thoughtfulness, it implies a certain amount of, of focus and preoccupation. The four days in which they watch over this lamb, this is perhaps an important part of their preparation of becoming a nation uh, that follows God's commands, that prepares themselves well for entering into a relationship with God. On the other hand, we have another approach to this taking of the lamb and watching it for four days, and that's an approach that we find in a, a Midrash, and that is that this is actually for the sake of separating between the Jews and the Egyptians. In fact, the Se says this approach, the lamb is some sort of uh, deified figure in Egypt, and when the Jews take this lamb and they declare publicly that they intend to slaughter the lamb, and then for four days they keep the lamb in their house in order to show that they are not afraid of proclaiming their allegiance to God and publicly denying the Egyptian gods, that's part of the process as well. So as I said, there are different approaches to understanding why we take this lamb and we use it as a mishmeret. In any case, though, it certainly seems to be part of the process of moving towards a relationship with God, a relationship of God that involves commandments, mitzvot, all sorts of normative actions. Okay, let's look in Pasuk Zayin. V'lakchu min adam v'natnu al shtei hamezuzot ve'al hamashkof al habatim asher yochlu oto bahem. You should take from the blood and you should put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel upon the houses where you shall eat it in them. Eat it, meaning the, uh, the lamb that you've taken to slaughter. So here we have some sort of, uh, in, some sort of details of what we should do with the blood. Uh, this also, I think, is an important part of the process. On the one hand, the blood on the doorpost seems to separate between the Jews and the Egyptians. Outside, the Egyptians are being um, are, are, are involved in this plague of the firstborn, and somehow the blood it becomes a sign uh, that in this house there are people who are worshiping God and therefore are not going to be affected by the plague of the firstborn. Perhaps the blood is a symbol of the nation's uh, willingness to sacrifice themselves to God or to offer themselves to God. Remember, all of Am Yisrael is referred to as Bini Bechori Yisrael, my firstborn child Israel. And so this blood on the doorposts suggests that they will be bringing sacrifices, that they have committed themselves to God. At the same time, what we'll be talking about in a few minutes is that we see that this Korban Pesach, I'm calling it a Korban Pesach, 
this uh, paschal sacrifice that they're bringing on this night also involves a some sort of avodat adam, some sort of blood service, which we find with regard to all sacrifices. Right? There's a sprinkling of the sacrifice's blood on the altar in uh, in in all korbanot, and here we have this uh, on the house itself, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Okay, let's look at our next pasuk, pasuk chet. Ve'achlu et habasar and they shall eat the meat on that night, roasted in fire, along with matzot, along with the unleavened bread, along with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Now, um, to, to some extent, we're going to be asking this question as we progress throughout the, the, the parak, and that is, what is the nature of this meal? Is this a luxurious meal that is meant to... Uh, that is meant to prepare them for freedom, that is meant even perhaps to symbolize their freedom? Or is this meal about their existential instability? Is it about the experience of eating in slavery? Is it about anxiety, which is an inherent part of the story? Death is in the air. There's makat becharot, the plague of the firstborn, which is swirling all around. And they are inside waiting, hoping for imminent freedom, but the sense is not a, ce a celebratory sense, but an awareness of God's judgments that are going on, a certain sense of apprehension. Um, there's a lot of different aspects of the story that indicate that this, this lack, a certain lack of clarity about the nature of the meal, one of which is al-mirorim, uh, that you eat the meal with these bitter herbs. There's a bit of a debate, there's a bit of a controversy as to why this original meal in Egypt is written with the bitter herbs. Uh, it, it, in the Mishnah, it suggests it is suggested that uh, it is about recalling the bitterness of the slavery. Other mifarshim, however, suggest the very opposite, and that is that these mirorim are some sort of, uh, uh, describe some sort of luxurious kind of meal in which they dip their pita into this, uh, you know, very nice uh, kind of dip. And therefore, it suggests that they are relaxed at the meal, unlike the general way in which slaves eat their meals. So that this very fact of al-mirorim, of eating something with these, um, I wouldn't call it maybe bitter, but maybe these spicy or tasty kind of dips. So that suggests a luxurious meal. Uh, look in Pasuk Tet, do not eat from it raw, uvashel mevushal bamaim, or cooked in water, ki'imtsli eish, but only roasted in fire. Rosho al Kraav the al kirbo, its uh, head along with its legs and its innards. In other words, it should be roasted whole. Um, this emphasis on the roasting is also, I think, perhaps suggesting that we are talking about a korban-like kind of cooking. Certainly, the phrase Rosho al Kraav the al kirbo is a phrase that we have with korban chatat in Vaikra. And so here again, we have these indications that we have a sacrificial-like experience going on with regard to the meal of this evening. Look at the next pasuk as well. Velo totiru mimenu ad boker, and you should not leave from it until the morning. Vehanotar mimenu ad boker ba'esh itisrofu. Anything that is left over until the morning should be burned in the fire. The prohibition of eating the remains of the meat is really a very uh, a, a, an indication that this is this is really a korban-like situation. We've seen that this uh, whatever it is that they're that they're doing on this evening, it certainly is very very similar 
to the bringing of the korban. The language is very korban-like. We saw the zachar, the ben shana, the tamim, in terms of the description of the set itself. The din, the halacha of mishmeret, also exists with korbanot, of, of watching over the animal. Uh, the fact that something is done with the blood, that the blood is placed on the doorpost, the expression that we saw, rosho al-kra'av, the al-kirbo, the fact that it's eaten with matzot as an accompaniment that also reminds us of the language and the situation of korbanot. And yet at the same time, it's clear that this is not really a korban. And there's no mizbeach, there's no altar. The animal is not cut up and stripped. Instead, it's roasted whole. Presumably, that is an act of defiance against the Egyptians so they can, or perhaps it's an act of defiance against the Egyptians so they can identify it as their holy animal, uh, but that's not the way that, that sacrifices were actually brought. Uh, there's no kohen involved here. There's no reference to any aspect of ritual cleanliness, no paraduma, no attempt to contend with tum'ah, with ritual impurity, and perhaps most fundamental of, uh, of all is how can we call the Pesach a korban, some sort of sacrificial offering, when nothing is offered, right? The sacrifice remains from beginning to end in the hands of people. There is no action of giving a portion of this meal to God, right? No, no, nothing is mukrav, nothing is offered to God. This is, of course, not true about Pesach Dorot. That's why perhaps it gets a little bit confusing. That korban must be brought to the Beit HaMikdash, must be brought upon the altar. There we have the blood and, and, and the pieces are given uh, to the Mizbeach. There are, of course, uh, priests and Kohanim involved as well. So here we have a lot of korban-like language, but clearly it's not exactly your classic korban. Um, Rav Breuer suggests that these similarities are intended to hint to Am Yisrael that the, Pes the Pesach of the, the, the next generations will, in fact, feature a korban. Of course, Pesach Mitzrayim does not have a korban. There is no Mizbeach. Am Yisrael uh, is not bringing here a korban, and perhaps that's because God's presence was felt without it. In fact, we have an interesting uh, Gemara in Psachim where we're told that if you think that in Mitzrayim there was no uh, altar, that's not exactly true. Rav Yosef taught there were three altars in Egypt, the two doorposts and the lintel. In other words, there's a search here for an altar in the story so that we can identify this as a korban. And in fact, um, I would suggest what others have suggested before me, and that is that the houses in Egypt, the, and the emphasis on the house, which we've spoken about, basically turned into altars, right? And they substitute for the Mizbeach. Again, that doesn't mean that this is formally a korban, but perhaps just Thematically, we have this sense that the altar itself, even though it's missing, it's replaced by the house. That would explain why we are forbidden to remove the meat of the Pesach from the house. We're going to see that later on in the chapter. That might also explain why throughout the Chag of Pesach, not only are we forbidden to eat chametz, but it's even forbidden to possess chametz in our home. We don't, just as we don't put chametz, on the altar, based on the Pasuk in Vayikra Perak Bet. Um, the sense is, is that the blood that is placed on the entrance to the home is because the entire home 
is the altar. And, and this, I think, has certain kind of resonance for another aspect of the story in which the home becomes a sanctuary. The home is a place just as the altar functions as a sanctuary. Several times in Tanakh, we have people trying to grab hold of the altar in order so that they can, uh, they can um, escape um, uh, judgment. No, we don't actually allow them to do so, but there is this idea of the altar being a sanctuary. We don't allow Yoav ben Tria or Adoniahu avoid their deserved punishment, but in any case, there's this idea that an altar can become a sanctuary, and that's what seems to happen here in Mitzrayim. Um, and so uh, this resolves the question of the nature of this animal. Is it a korban? To some degree it is, but it's never actually called a korban, nor does it share all of the features or perhaps even um, uh, some of the basic features of a korban, but it still has certain thematic connections with, with later korbanot. Okay, let's look here in Pasukid Aleph and uh, a little bit more focus on the meal itself rather than the sacrifice that leads to the meal. Uh, and this is how you should eat it. Your loins shall be girded. Your, your shoes shall be on your feet. Your feet shall be in your shoes. And your staff and your stick shall be in your hand. And you shall eat it with haste. Pesach hu ladonai. The word Pesach is very difficult to translate. There are several possibilities, all of which are attested to in different Midrashim and in def different biblical interpreters. Does it mean it is a um, an act of, of compassion by God? Does it mean that God is protecting them? Does it mean that God is skipping over them? All of these are possibilities, as we'll see when the word Pesach turns into a verb in, in uh, Pasuk Yud Gimel. In any case, I wanted to just discuss for a moment the idea of eating this meal with haste. The word chipazon means haste. And again, here, it's not clear whether or not this is a positive meaning or a negative meaning. Are they eating it in haste um, it, it, uh, because this suggests their anxiety, it, it, it suggests their sense of fear, the sense of instability that accompanies this meal in which they're really um, in this sort of, you know, uh, heightened state of readiness um, of, of running away? Or is chipazon a mood, a spiritual state of readiness, of excitement, of impatience, of this exciting sensation that freedom is on the horizon? Different nefarshim go in different directions with this. And I'll just leave it that I think that perhaps this entire description is deliberately um, uh, ambiguous on this, that perhaps they are meant to experience both. This story is the story of Amisrael, both experiencing the possibility of imminent freedom and at the same time the possibility of their being swept into this uh, death of the firstborn, which we see even as it will be formulated in the next two psukim, that it, death is on their doorstep. There's a sense that um, you know they too could be swept up within this plague were it not for what they do on that night, the way in which they uh, they they um, follow the commandments of God, the way in which they put blood on their doorpost, were it not for that, they too would be swept up in this 
terrible uh, experience of the death of the firstborn. Look now in Psukim Yudbet and Yudgimel, Pasuk Yudbet, the Averti, the Eretz Mitzrayim, Balayla Hazeh, the Hiketi, Kol Bechor, the Eretz Mitzrayim, the Adam, the Adbehema, Uvechol Elohe Mitzrayim, Esesh Fatim, Ani Adonai. And I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike every firstborn in the land of Egypt, from human to beast. And with all of the gods of Egypt, I will exercise judgment. I am God. And the blood will be for you as a sign upon the houses that you are in them. And I will see the blood. And I will either, as I said before, I will either skip over you or I will have compassion upon you or I will protect you. And you will not have this plague as a destroyer when I strike the land of Egypt. And again, there is this sense of the, the frightening nature of death that is swirling around in the air. These two psukim are actually quite different uh, uh, from the first 11 psukim that we saw in the chapter. This begins God's part of the evening until now. Responsibility has rested on the shoulders of Am Yisrael. Here we have a, a whole series of first-person verbs in which God uh, emerges with this strong statement of the Avarti, the Hiketi, I will pass through, I will strike, the Ra'iti, and I will see the blood, Ufasachti, and I will have compassion, or I will skip over. The first verse, verse um, uh, 12, ends with the words, Ani Hashem, there's great emphasis on God's personal involvement, both in bringing to bear his judgments upon Egypt, and also in skipping over and having compassion upon the people, upon the children of Israel, upon the people who have kept his commands properly and put the blood on their doorposts. This is all about the creation of a relationship which is based on obedience, which is based on service. This is also a fitting ending for the beginning of Parshat Va'era, in which God introduced himself, Ani Hashem, and here once again he introduces himself, Ani Hashem, as he goes through Egypt and, 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 and strikes the Egyptians, while at the same time, um, saving those people who have begun to fulfill his commands. Now for the duration of this year, we will turn our attention to the description of Pesach Dorot, Pesach for the generations. In the middle of the story of what actually is happening right now in Egypt, uh, they are commanded to celebrate Pesach for generations to come. As I noted previously, there are going to be many references to eating in the section, thus making it clear that the essence of Pesach Dorot pertains to eating. But if in the previous section it's the eating of the meal alongside the Korban Pesach, uh, which seems to be the focus, in, in the section which describes Pesach Dorot, it seems to be focusing mostly on Chametz and Matzah. Let's look in Pesach Yudalid. This day shall be for you as a commemoration, and you should celebrate it as a celebration to God, as a festival for God, for the generations. This will be a statute, a statute forever uh, that you should celebrate it. Shivaat yamim matzot tochelu. For seven days you shall eat matzot. You shall eat unleavened bread. Ach harishon 
תשביתו שאור מבתיכם, כי כל אוכל חמץ ונכרתה הנפש ההיא מישראל מיום הראשון עד יום השביעי. And on the first day you should remove leaven from your houses for anyone who eats chametz, anyone who eats leavened bread, uh, and he, he shall be cut off from Israel from the first day until the seventh day. Uvayom harishon mikra kodesh. Uvayom hashvi'i mikra kodesh. Yelachem. Kol melacha lo yasevahem. Ach asher yachel lechol nefesh. First day shall be called holy, and the seventh day shall be called holy for you. All work shall not be done on these days. Only what every person is meant to eat, that it alone shall be done for you. In other words, you can only prepare food, but in general, work is prohibited on those days. This, of course, is the first Chag in Tanakh. Here we have the mitzvah. of not doing work on the first and the seventh day of Pesach. Ushmartem et ha-matzot, ki be'etzem ha-yom ha-zeh, hotzeiti et tzivotechem me'eretz mitzrayim, ushmartem et ha-yom ha-zeh ledorotechem chukat olah. And you should observe the unleavened bread, for in the essence of this day, I took out your hosts from the land of Egypt, and you shall observe this day for your generations as an eternal statute. ברישון בארבע עשר יום לחודש בערב תאכלו מצות עד יום האחד ועשרים לחודש בערב. In the first month, from the fourteenth of the uh, day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month in the evening. שבעת ימים שאור לא יימצא בבתיכם כי כל אוכל מחמצת ונכרתה הנפש ההיא מעדת ישראל בגר ובאזרח הארץ. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. For anyone who eats leaven and that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a ger, a stranger, or whether he is a citizen of the land. כל מחמצת לא תאכלו, all unleavened things shall not, you shall not eat. In all of your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Okay, so this uh, section does seem a little bit repetitive. And for the moment, what I'm going to try to do is just get a little bit of a sense. We are coming to the end of our shiur, but I do want to get a little bit of a sense of the idea of Pesach Morot, which I think is really very much characterized here by our positive obligation to eat matzot, and perhaps more intriguingly, the negative command to not eat chametz, to not eat anything that is leavened. I, I say more intriguingly because that's the real chidush here. That seems to be the real innovation in Pesach Dorot. They do seem to eat matzot with the korban in Egypt, as we saw in verse 8, but there's no indication that they are not allowed to eat chametz on the night of the 14th of Nisan when they eat in Egypt. And so that seems to be the, um, something that is just applicable in the celebration of Pesach for generations to come. Maybe just say a word or two about Matzot, which we'll continue to talk about in our next shiur. And that is that, again, as we said um, about the, the, the meal in general, that the meal is sort of a complex combination of a luxurious meal that is pointing towards freedom and a, a rather uh, apprehensive meal 
that is filled with the anxiety of still being stuck as slaves in Egypt, perhaps this is also indicated by the conflicting reasons that we eat matzot. It is both called lechem oni, right, lechem oni, which would seem to be the bread of our affliction, as we said about maror, the bitter herbs. In some way, the, uh, the unleavened bread also represents our affliction and our slavery. On the other hand, it represents this excitement, the lack of time. We're told, Lo yachlu lihitmameh, they couldn't, they couldn't hesitate, and therefore they didn't have time for the bread to leaven. So the matzot are indicative both of our excitement and anticipation for freedom and our backward glance at this very difficult period of slavery. But as I said, perhaps more interesting is the idea of chametz, why in, uh, in, in the next generations for eternity do we commemorate our exodus from Egypt by not eating leavened bread? Well, I'll just mention a few ideas. There are certainly a, there's a lot of attention that's been given to this question. Certainly it is connected to what we said previously, which is that in later generations, uh, we are commemorating uh, the korban with a korban, but even in uh, the Pesach Mitzrayim, even in the celebration of Pesach, um, when we were still in Egypt, there was a sense that the Pesach was considered to be a korban, that the house was an altar. When you create an altar, when you have an altar, you can't bring chametz on it. And the reason for this seems to be, and there's a real sense in, uh, in, in rabbinic literature, that chametz represents something negative. What that negative thing is, is somewhat of a subject of debate. Perhaps the Barbanel seems to sort of go in this direction. Chametz, leaven, is a symbol of fatness, a symbol of wealth, a symbol of something that is puffed up, a symbol of perhaps conspicuous consumption. As such, we are meant to bear in mind, as we celebrate the holiday of freedom, that freedom is not meant to lead to excess. Freedom is really about service of God. In a similar vein, Revyol Binun suggests that chametz is the symbol of completion, the attainment of the desired goal. Matzah, of course, is the opposite, the unleavened bread, which represents a station in mid-process. Um, in this sense, perhaps, it's of significance that Egypt was itself uh, a society that was rather arrogant in terms of its sense of completion and well-being and accomplishment, and that leaving behind Mitzrayim is also about leaving behind that kind of arrogance, that kind of sense of, um, I have uh, already achieved everything that I wanted to achieve in life. Others suggest that chametz represents rot and corruption. And finally, I'll just mention that uh, Egypt was very proud specifically of its bread, of its ability to leaven. Um, we know that they developed this very early on, their ability to make bread. It's one of the reasons that they were able to be so successful militarily. Without lechem, there is no milchama. And of course, Egypt very, very early on was able to produce bread. And so during this seven-day holiday in which we, um, in which we, we, we celebrate having left Egypt, we also symbolically abandon all association with Egypt, perhaps especially that item which was most strongly associated with Egypt's success. Perhaps it is all of these ideas together 
which constitute the idea of not eating chametz, not eating leaven during the celebration of Pesach for generations to come. This is a celebration not of freedom per se, but of what freedom means. Freedom means to serve God, not to engage in excessive consumption, but rather simplicity, to leave behind a culture of rot and corruption, a culture in which they feel that they have accomplished all of their goals. All of these ideas together can actually explain to us a little bit about why we have this um, commemoration of Pesach Dorot, of Pesach for Generations, uh, by focusing on not just eating matzot, but not eating leavened bread. In our next year, we will begin with Parak Yudbet Pasuk of Aleph, where we actually have the beginning of the implementation of these commands that God gave to B'nai Israel, which is going to lead us to Yitziat Mitzrayim, to that great um, climactic moment in which Am Yisrael actually leave Egypt. And with that, we will conclude this fourth part in our series on Parshat Bo.